0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Bereans. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We are glad you're with us today. Those watching live, thank you for being with us. Now, let me just say this. If you are watching me right now on YouTube, stop. Shut off YouTube. Go over to Rumble, okay? <laughs> we're trying to... We're going to keep broadcasting on YouTube, but we want to move to Rumble because Rumble is... They're not censoring over there, okay? We get censored on YouTube. If I say something they don't like, they take it down. Uh, we go to Rumble. Rumble's going to be part of Truth Social when it comes out at the end of March, so Rumble's going to be the place to go. So just encourage you to go to Rumble... Berean Bible Church, VA, and watch us on Rumble. All right. We're going to continue our study this morning of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We began looking at verse 10 last week, and I asked the question, why were the Thessalonians waiting for his son from heaven? Why were they doing that? And, And the only thing I can come up with is they must have expected it. You wouldn't wait for something that you're not going to see or you have no expectation to see. He says that they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I want to draw out something here. Who are they waiting for? Well, the text says they're waiting for his son. Now, this is significant. This is the only place in the Thessalonian correspondence where Yeshua is called God's son. This is significant. This person is identified as his son, meaning God's son, the divine son of God. But this person is also one called Yeshua, who is a man. So this is the God-man. He is both man and God united together in one person. This is the hypostatic union. This is the theanthropic person, the God-man. Only person ever existed like this was Yeshua as God he could not be man's representative but as man he could represent us he could die for our sin as man he could be tempted even though as the God man he would not and could not sin as God he would give us not just life but eternal life and not just righteousness but perfect righteousness All right, so it is His Son. who They're waiting for His Son from heaven. Now, this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. Everybody recognizes that? There's no argument on that here in this text. They're waiting for the second coming. You can call it His return. We call it His return because He left and He came back, right? We got that? You can call it a second advent. You can call it a second coming. You could call it the parousia. They all have refer to the same thing. But let me just say a few words about parousia. Parousia is the Greek word that's often translated coming. We see it used in Matthew 24, 3 here. He says, And he sat at the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming, parousia, and the end of the age? So the Greek word here, coming, is parousia. It means Arrival. Horacea does not necessarily have the idea of return. See, the disciples at this point could not have been asking about a future return of Christ because they had no idea He was leaving. They believed that Yeshua was the promised Messiah. They believed the Messiah would come and He would rule. They had no idea of Him coming, then leaving, and then coming back again. They didn't get that. They didn't get it for a long time, Okay. So let me ask you a question. If they had no idea that Yeshua was going to leave them, why would they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? Good question. I'm glad you asked it. The answer is in an understanding the Jewish concept of parousia. As I said, the word meant arrival or presence, not necessarily return. To them, it didn't refer to a future return of Christ. To the disciples, parousia of the Son of Man signified the full manifestation of His Messiahship, His glorious appearing in power. William Barclay says of parousia, parousia is the regular word for the arrival of a governor into his province or the coming of a king to his subjects. It regularly describes a coming in authority and power. So, the disciples would have been accustomed to hearing Yeshua speak of His coming in His kingdom, coming in glory, coming in power, and doing that within their lifetime. They didn't know He was leaving, but they looked for a time and He would appear in full glory, bringing in the kingdom, and rewarding every man. So, they didn't understand that Christ would sit on His throne by means of His death, resurrection, and ascension. They didn't get that. But now we go to the Thessalonians. They knew about the resurrection. They knew about the ascension. And they were waiting for Christ to return. They were waiting on a second coming. Hebrews 9, 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, He dealt that with the first coming, all right? But to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And again, salvation came in its fullness at the second coming. So the Son left in His ascension, and now the Thessalonians are waiting for Him to appear a second time. They were waiting for Him to come from heaven. How did they do this? What does it mean that they were waiting? Were they waiting while they were in their graves? No, of course not. He said they were serving the true and the living God while they were on earth, they were serving Him, and while they're on earth, they're waiting for this coming, thinking they are going to see it. They expected it in their lifetime. Now, we talked at length last week about the word wait. It's from the Greek word onomeno. And it's only found here in the New Testament. That makes it difficult, you know, to trace its usage. But it's used four times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, in the complete biblical library Greek-English dictionary, Thorolf Gilbrant states this. In classical Greek, onomeno means waiting or staying in wait. The word carries the sense of anticipation. Of an impending event. One such example is the use of onameno in describing an army waiting for the enemy to attack. Now you get that. They're they're on the verge, they're waiting, they're watching, they expect to see it. He says it's anticipation of an impending event. Now let me just tell you here this man, Gilbrandt, is not a preterist. right? he's got no dog in the fight. He's a lexicographer. And what he is doing is telling us what this Greek word means. To the Thessalonians, the second coming was an impending event. Now, J. Hampton Keithley III, who's got a THM, he writes this. The present tense of wait suggests that wrath here is the tribulation. I agree with that. They expected his return at any moment it was His eminent return that delivers them and all believers. Now, you know what the word eminent means, right? About to happen. Ready to take place. Happening soon, for example. They were in eminent danger of being swept away, someone would say. So it's something that's about to happen. It's on the verge. Now, Keith Lee goes on to say this. What what exactly are we waiting for as Christians? Whose is that? Okay. We are waiting for the personal and visible return of the person, the person of Jesus Christ, whose return is eminent. It could be at any moment. All right. So again, he is. It's probably less noisy if we keep the door shut. Somebody go pull that, disconnect that battery out there. (laughs) Alright, so he says the Thessalonians are waiting for an eminent return. And then he says this. What exactly are we waiting for? The we would be him and us, right? We waiting for. We're waiting for the personal, visible return of the person, the person of Jesus Christ, whose return is eminent. Okay, so it was eminent... 2,000 years ago to the Thessalonians and it's eminent now to us. Does anybody have a problem with that? Around 50 AD it's eminent and they're saying, and he's saying it's still eminent and I'm like, ah, that doesn't make sense to me. I think that the fact that the first century believers in Thessalonica were waiting for Christ coming from heaven tells us they expected to see it in their lifetime. Why do you look for something you're never going to see? We don't. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says to wait for his son from heaven. So the first century Thessalonian believers looked for the second coming in their lifetime. They expected to see it. Why? Where did they get this idea that Christ would return in the first century? Well, Paul taught them. Timothy spent some time there teaching them. They obviously taught this. And Paul and Timothy obviously got it from the Lord himself. He taught a first century return. So Yeshua taught that his parousia would happen in that generation, the one he lived in, the one he talked to. Yeshua taught that the parousia would happen within a 40-year period. He taught that some of the disciples that he was teaching would still be there when it happened. Matthew 16, 27-28. Paul taught the Thessalonians that some of them would be alive to see it. It was now nearly 20 years away. They're writing in 50, 70 it happens, about 20 years away. Paul taught all the churches that Christ would return in their lifetime. Every time he taught, he taught that. So the return of Yeshua is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books, except for Galatians, I think it's alluded to there, and very short books of 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. The return of Christ is a major theme in the New Testament. As you study the theme of the return, you find that the first century church expected the Lord to return in their lifetime. They thought that because that's what Yeshua taught. That's what the New Testament authors taught. Albert Schweitzer's book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, that was first published in German in 1906, he painted Yeshua and his early followers as being obsessed with the very eminent end of the world. Okay? I mean, this is one of his main themes. They were just crazy about the fact that the world's going to end in their lifetime. Now, the problem was, the Greek word I own does not mean world. But when it's translated world, it kind of throws you off, because there was an end of an age. There was not an end of the world. But Schweitzer saw that the Scriptures taught an eminent coming. But according to Schweitzer, since the world did not, in fact, end in the first century, that would seem to leave Yeshua as deeply mistaken about his own mission. Schweitzer's point of view seemed convincing. And to Christians, it was embarrassing. Okay, what do we do with this? He's right. In reaction, many thinking Christians had quietly kind of tiptoed away from the consideration of the second coming. Let's not talk about that. Uh, Something's wrong here We just don't know what it is But something's wrong Because he did say he was coming And he didn't Well, he did They just didn't think he did So, why does the majority Of churchianity today Still reject The time statements Of the first century Coming of Christ With our modern translations We know that Christ talked about The end of an age Not the end of the world I mean, most translations Have fixed that by now Okay (coughs) except for the King James, of course. So why can't Christians see this? Well, we talked about this as we ended last week, but here's the bottom line. I think they can't see the time statements because they still are looking for a physical return of Christ. A physical return, and when they think Christ comes back in a physical return, He's going to destroy this earth. All right, That's their concept of it. All right, let's look at 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So, you know, they see this as referring to a total destruction of the earth. That's what they, most people think is supposed to happen. Because they read that verse and say, well, look, that's obviously what it's talking about. And they see something like this. Just everything's burning up. The whole earth is destroyed. Now, if that's your view, then guess what? You know it hasn't happened, right? Because you can just look outside and see everything's cool, all right? It hasn't happened. And because that hasn't happened, then they can't believe Christ's return. And to them, the nature of the second coming is physical, It's a physical event that will destroy the earth. Now, I submit to you that either Scripture is wrong about the time of the second coming and thus not inerrant. No, you don't like that? Or, our paradigms are wrong about the nature of the second coming. Now, which one of those are you more comfortable with? An incorrect paradigm or an uninspired Scripture? And here's what I want you to understand. Time defines nature. If Yeshua did come in the first century, then it should be clear that the nature of His coming was spiritual. Time defines nature. Yeshua said He would return to the first century generation. That's time. He said He would return soon. He said He would return to some of those standing there. That's time. So the nature must not have been physical because we believe him and we believe he kept his word. Now Stephen Cole in his commentary in on 1 Thessalonians 1.10 writes this, Bible-believing Christians, now I, know, I want you to notice he's making a distinction here between Christians and Bible-believing Christians, okay? <laughs> they differ on many of the details regarding Jesus coming, but they all agree with the fact that he is coming bodily do we all agree on that christians don't all, don't all agree on every anything okay so you can't you can't they all agree with this fact yeah they, they're well that's true that's true if you don't see you're still a christian you're just not a bible Christian. you make that distinction there all right let me ask you something they all agree he's coming bodily what exactly does that mean what does that look like He's coming bodily. You're gonna see. Okay, is that so? What do we picture? A Middle Eastern man on a cloud floating down out of the sky? Is that? I mean, how? We, what kind of image are we supposed to get here? It's coming bodily, so there's going to be a body, and it's just going to float down out of the sky. If that were to happen, that would be a very limited sighting. Okay, we can only see so far, so if we could see it. Guess what? Most of the world wouldn't see it. All right. Now I've heard people say, "Well, it's going to be broadcast on cable news, and every eye will see him." I'm like, "Well, okay, I don't, I don't think so." Cole goes on to say, "Jesus is coming again. He is not just coming spiritually, as some preterists contend, but bodily." Okay. Now watch. Then he's going to prove what he just said, or thinks he's going to prove it, with a spoof text. Revelation declares, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Now watch what he says. If he is not coming again bodily, God's word's not true. That, okay, see, a statement like that is just, is, is a psychological maneuver to say, you better agree with me. Okay, because the Bible will be wrong if I'm not right. Okay, that's basically what he's saying. But let me ask you something. Where do we see a bodily coming taught in the Scripture? See, I would say, what you're, you just quoted that verse in Revelation, but that doesn't prove your... Te- you, it doesn't. This says nothing about a bodily coming. Look, at, behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so... Amen. Okay, now, what Cole fails to take into account here is that Yeshua not only says he's coming with the clouds, but he uses the same exact Greek word for coming that he uses here, Erkamai, four times to say, I'm coming soon. So if, if Revelation 1-7 proves a bodily coming, then Revelation three eleven proves that bodily coming had to be soon. Okay? Revelation 22.7 says the same thing. 22.12, 22.20. So again, time defines nature. We know he said he's coming soon. But I don't see a bodily coming in verse 7 of Revelation. It doesn't say bodily. But let's look at the verse. All right? He's coming with the clouds. Again, how do you envision that? So you see a body on a cloud. Is that, is that what that's saying to you? See, modern Christians view this... As a literal physical coming, because he's on clouds. So, have you ever seen anybody on a cloud? Clouds are vapor. You know that. You just kind of fall right through them. Okay, so I'm not sure how this works out, but that's how this how people picture it. All right, there's clouds and there's this Middle Eastern man in the sky, and he's on the clouds and he's coming. But here's the problem. If, and this is a big if, if we are familiar with the Tanakh, okay. We know that Yahweh is often depicted as riding a cloud. Yahweh is the cloud rider. Okay, that's so important to understanding. All right, Uh, look at Psalm 104:3. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. When we place the biblical image. In light of the ancient Near Eastern understanding, we realize that God's cloud is a chariot that he rides. Not a little chariot, but it's God coming to bring judgment. When God comes in the clouds, he comes to bring judgment. It doesn't mean, you know, they looked and they saw, oh, look, there's a man on that cloud. He's going to judge somebody. Let's go back to Isaiah 19. If you don't know this verse, you need to know it. You need to mark this in your Bible. You need to understand this verse because this is a verse that will help you arguing with people who want to talk about a bodily coming. An oracle concerning Egypt. The word oracle is the Hebrew word Matha, and it means an utterance chiefly of doom. This is a pronouncement of judgment against Egypt. All right? Now, we know from chapter 20 that Yahweh used the Assyrian army as instruments of wrath. In other words, God sent the Assyrians into Egypt to destroy Egypt. That's very clear. Just all you have to do is go on to chapter 20. But let's look at what it says. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud, and he comes to Egypt. So Yahweh's coming to Egypt. Did anybody in Egypt see Yahweh? Did they look up on a cloud and say, look at that, there's Yahweh? No. Watch, the idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence. So God's there, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So the text says Yahweh came to Egypt. Did He physically come to Egypt? No. Well, how did He come to Egypt then? He came in judgment, and His presence was made known in the judgment, not in some physical form. It was the Assyrians who were literally present. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Now you, okay, say, you know, these writers, okay, Revelation alludes to the Old Testament, the Tanakh, more than any other book of the Bible. So the writer John is very familiar with the Scriptures. So when he says he's coming on the clouds, he he knows what Isaiah and all the other scriptures said. Yahweh rides a swift cloud into judgment. So when he says he's coming on the clouds, guess what? Judgment is coming. All right? So when the New Testament talks about Yeshua riding a cloud, we understand this is not a white, puffy cloud. On the contrary, it's a storm cloud that he rides to judgment. Listen, People, please, the more we understand the Tanakh, the better we understand the language of the New Testament. And without understanding it, we just make up what we want. And you read the word cloud and you say, I know what a cloud is and I know what a person is, so I put them together and I got a person riding on a cloud. That's not the picture here at all. The idea, it says here, every eye will see him. See? They, they proved that. Look at it. everybody's going to see him. Well, seeing here is not physically seeing. Physic- the, the word seeing here means to recognize, to be aware, to perceive. See, the destruction of Jerusalem would cause the tribes of Israel to recognize that Yeshua was indeed the Son of Man and the Messiah. The coming spoken of in Revelation is to be upon those who pierced Him. Now let me ask you, who is that? Who pierced Him? The Jews. Over and over we are taught, it was the first century Jews. They pierced him. Now watch, all the tribes of the earth, guess who that is? Again, it's Israel, okay? This book introduces readers, the book of Revelation, to the theology of judgment. This book's all about judgment. It's not about judgment today. It's about judgment of Jerusalem. God's judgment sanctions against the nation Israel, the people who pierced His Son, the people who rejected their Messiah, the people of the old covenant who had the Scriptures, who should have known, they didn't, and God shut it down. Stephen Cole writes, Genuine Christians... Okay, there we go. (laughs) Because some Christians aren't genuine, okay? But if you're genuine, and I'm not sure what distinguishes those two, okay? Okay? I do know what distinguishes. It depends on if you believe with your head or your heart. See, if you believe in your heart, then you're genuine. If you believe in your head... Now, see, that's the most... I'm, I'm being facetious, okay? You do understand that, right? Your, your, your blood-pumping organ cannot believe anything. You believe with your mind. You believe with your thought process. Genuine Christians, he says, wait expectantly for God's Son from heaven. When Jesus ascended into heaven... The angel told the disciples who watched him. Now he quotes Acts 1.11. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He ascended bodily. He will return bodily. And every eye will see him. Again, he's putting the bodily thing in there. It's not in the text. There's no text that says he'll return bodily. But they read text like this and they pull it out of there. Okay, let's go to Acts 1. Let's look at this text. Acts 1 9 says, and when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. All right, now I took some scripture out of here for the purpose of making this text fit on the slide, okay? So I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm not trying to trick you. Go back and look at the text itself, okay? It talks about stuff that we're not dealing with, so I want you to see it together. But I'm asking you to check up on me. Look in your Bibles. Go home. Look it up. Make sure I'm not skipping some important part here. And he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Yeshua, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So... Guess how they put all that together? Now, commenting on this, John MacArthur writes this. The same Christ who ascended into heaven in Acts 1-9 will return the same way. He won't be different. He'll return in the same glorified body that the disciples saw when Christ joined them for breakfast by the Sea of Galilee in John 21. Okay, so what MacArthur is saying is that Christ is going to return in the crucifixion-scarred body that he left this earth in? I don't think so. See, Christ left the physical body and now is in a glorified body. There's a great song out now. I like, theologically, it's not correct, but most of the song's really good. And it talks about the only scars in heaven. There's no scars in heaven. Christ is not scarred in heaven, okay? That body is done. He finished the use of that body. He's in a glorified body. There's no scars in heaven. So, other than that, the song's great, okay? (laughs) Keith Matheson, who's a very vocal opponent of preterism, declaring us as heretics, he says this, Traditionally, Acts 1-11 has been understood to be a clear and unambiguous promise of the personal, visible, bodily second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. That's that's pulling a lot out of that text, okay? It's unambiguous that he's coming bodily, visibly, personally. I don't really think so. But let's look at the text. The argument runs like this. If Yeshua ascended visibly and in a physical body, and he's going to come in the same way as he left, then his return is going to be visible and in a physical body. Right? Makes sense? And since this clearly has not happened yet, because we don't have a record of him coming to the earth, nor is he here with us now, so therefore a future coming of Christ. We're still waiting. Well, physically, what is happening in this text? Is it that as they're standing there talking to Yeshua and all of a sudden he just begins to levitate? He just starts floating upward and a cloud comes along and boom. He goes into the cloud and he's gone. I mean, you read it. That's kind of what you think, right? And this is what most people read and they think that's what's happening. Now, I've said this many, many times, but I'm going to keep repeating it, okay? Apart from understanding the Tanakh, the Old Testament Scriptures, you will never, completely understand the New Testament. You can't. All the language comes from there. The writers of the New Testament suppose that their readers understood the Tanakh. And if we don't understand the language of the first three quarters of the Bible, we can't pick it up and start reading the end and think, oh, I know what that means. No, you don't. All that language was developed in the first three quarters of the Bible. Acts 1-9 is a really good illustration of this principle. If we don't understand the Tanakh idea of clouds... We're going to be lost here. Let me tell you something. Luke is not telling us here about the weather that day on the Mount of Olives. There was a cloud there. No, that, he's not talking about that. Okay, that idea is not at all what's going on here. It's not that Yeshua disappeared into this white, puffy cloud. All right? Luke writes, a cloud took him out of their sight. Well, what else could he mean by that, right? See, someone familiar with the Tanakh would recognize that what it's talking about here is Yeshua had gone to God. Who, God, when he revealed himself, regularly did so in a cloud. And so Luke is trying to signal here for us, the Messiah has gone back to be with the Father. Let's look at some text here. Exodus 16.10. And as soon as Aaron spoke, the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in a cloud. See, the cloud people indicated the presence of Yahweh. We saw that 19, Isaiah nineteen one. His presence will be made known, all right? Look at Exodus 19.9. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I'm, in co- I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak with you and also believe you forever. So he's coming back, again, the presence of God in the cloud. Leviticus 16.2. Yahweh said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Before the mercy seat, this is the holy of holies, that is on the ark. Okay, so that he may not die. Why? What's wrong with going in there? For I will appear in the cloud over the mercies. Going into the presence of God, he cannot do that. So the idea of a cloud would speak to them of the presence of God. So Yeshua is ascending into the presence of God. What they see, not they're not talking about a cloud. And they'd further remember when the Son of Man received his kingdom... He would do so in the clouds of heaven. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the people's nations and languages to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one, That shall not be destroyed. Now, notice that the Son of Man, he comes to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. In other words, Yeshua receives his kingdom and he sits at the right hand of God awaiting the conquest of his enemies. The idea of Yeshua going and coming on the clouds is familiar, apocalyptic language of the prophets to identify himself as Yahweh. Only God came on the clouds. Now, in the ancient Near East, Baal, the god Baal, was known as the cloud rider. And so the writers of Scripture are basically saying Baal's a joke. Yahweh's the cloud rider. All right, he is the god of gods and lord of lords. And that's why we see Yahweh as riding the clouds. Familiar Scripture, this is pointing to Yahweh. Because only God did that. It was a claim to deity. Deity. So they may have seen His entering the cloud as indicating His departing to His heavenly throne. That's what they see. This was the Shechanah cloud. It was the cloud which hid the presence of God. It was the same cloud of smoke that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6-4 when he got the throne room vision. It was the same cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness. It indicated the presence of God. Notice what Yeshua says to the high priest. But Yeshua remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. So Yeshua said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Okay, what's happening here? Who is Yeshua talking to? The high priest. priest. Watch what he says. He says, You... Have said so. You, the high priest, you said that. I tell you, the high priest, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of. In other words, okay, high priest, you're going to see this. He goes on to say, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What did Yeshua say that was blasphemous? Well, Caiaphas understood that Yeshua was claiming to be Yahweh. Again, Yahweh's the cloud rider. He's saying, You're going to, you, high priest, you are going to see me riding on the cloud in your lifetime. If he's going to see it, it had to be in his lifetime, right? Coming on the clouds of heaven is a symbolic way of speaking of Yahweh's presence. So get this idea, Luke mentions a cloud. Oh, it's a cloudy day today, and there he goes, disappeared in the cloud. It's not at all what he's talking about, okay? He says, well, he's going to come in the same way, they said. See, he went up bodily, did he? Did he? He's going to come in the same way. This is one of their arguments. But the ascension was physical and visible, so won't his return be? It says he will come in the same way. Now, the words in the same way are the Greek phrase tropos. And by examining the usage of tropos in the New Testament, it's clear that this phrase does not mean exactly in the same way. All right? Same in every detail. It has the idea of similar in fashion. For example, look at how the phrase is used in Luke 1334, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, though, who are sent. How often I would have gathered your children together. Hos tropos. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Now, did Yeshua want to gather Jerusalem in exactly the same way as a hen does that to its chicks? No, of course not. In the same way doesn't mean in exactly the same manner. That His coming was not to be exactly as He left in Acts 111 is clear by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Notice what Matthew says about the coming, Matthew 24. He says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Now this obviously is different than Acts 1.11. So he's going to come visibly in a cloud or is he going to come with lightning? What, what, is there a difference? Or maybe it's a cloudy, stormy day, so you've got lightning and clouds. But Paul describes Christ coming this way in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is not in the same way that Luke describes it in Acts. And what about 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8? And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. That's different than Acts 1.11, isn't it? Here we have angels, flaming fire, retribution. We don't see any of this in Acts. Well, notice what John says. This one really throws me. 19.11, 19.11, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So John has Yeshua coming on a horse, not a cloud. So what do we do now? Is the horse on the cloud? And So they're all together coming? So how can anyone say that Yeshua's going to come in exactly the same way he left? In Acts 1.11. Again, it's really not talking about that in Acts one eleven, anyway. It's talking about Yeshua who's going into the presence of the Father. When you compare Scripture to Scripture, it just doesn't add up. Now, the emphasis in Acts 1.11 is that Christ's coming would be a cloud coming. That's the emphasis. It's a judgment. Okay? A cloud took Him out of their sight. Just as He left in a cloud... He's going to come in the clouds. This is an apocalyptic symbol for coming in judgment. When Luke says that Yeshua is taken up in a cloud, he's not giving us a weather report of the day. He is saying that he is going back in the ascension to the Father. All right, let's back up a a few verses here to go to verse 9. And it says, And when he said to these things, As they were looking on, now, looking on here is a present active participle of the Greek word blepo, which according to B-A-G-D, blepo is used abstractly, i.e., there was no object at which the disciples were looking. This may well mean simply in their sight, as is in 1 Clement 25.4. Now, B, <laughs> B-A-G-D is short for a Greek English lexicon of the New Testament, and the letters B A G D are the initials of the four lexicographers who put this thing together Bauer, Danker, Ernt, and Gingrich. Okay, so when you see B A G D, that's what it's talking about. You'll know it's a Greek lexicon, very familiar lexicon, but that's what they're saying. They're saying this, is, this word is not used of looking at somebody. Okay, so Yeshua then is said to have been lifted up. Now, watch this, okay? This is the Greek word, epiro, which is a passive form. Figuratively, it connotes the lifting up of someone in stature or dignity. The only other use of this word cited in B-A-G-D is in 1 Clement 45.8, and there it does not denote a literal and physical elevation of the person but instead describes the exaltation of someone. So when it says he's lifted up, it might not at all be talking about him rising off the ground. It's talking about he's exalted into the presence of God because the cloud receives him. That's the presence of God. William Neal writes this. It would be a grave misunderstanding of Luke's mind and purpose to regard his account of the ascension of Christ as other than symbolic, and poetic. He is not describing an act of levitation. That's what we we read. that. That's what we see, though, right? You're reading Acts 11, You see Yeshua starts floating up off the ground, and there's a cloud, and he goes in the cloud, and he's gone. That might not be at all what we're talking about here. All right? As they were looking on, he's lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. So a correct understanding of this may not have anything to do with him floating up into the air in a cloud, but may, in fact, speak of his exaltation into the presence of God. Either way, the main idea here is that Yeshua is exalted to the right hand of God, a position of superiority over and above all others. That's what Luke's telling us. Now listen, people. There is no Scripture... That explicitly teaches that you should return in a physical, bodily fashion. They use these scriptures and somehow they make them uh, being about a physical thing and they say, You see the bodily resurrection there? You see the, I mean, you see the bodily coming there? No. So there's no scripture that says he's going to come physically, bodily. But there are many texts that tell us that his coming would be soon. To his first century audience. An understanding of the language of Scripture will help us see that His coming was not to be physical, but a coming in judgment on Old Covenant Israel. The judgment was physical because Israel was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, temple was destroyed, but His presence was not physical. Now, we mentioned earlier 2 Peter 3.10. We need to look at this verse because this is a verse where people, again, see the physical. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So this sure sounds, again, like a physical event. It sounds like the whole earth is just all burned up. It's all gone. And again, that's people's view of a second coming. And so time defines nature. If that's the nature, the time could not have been soon. But that there's a problem there because then Yeshua is wrong. Now, most Christians would say that this is the end of the world as we know it, the destruction of the earth, and it's going to happen in our future. They come up with this end-of-the-world scenario because we're so unfamiliar, again, with the first three quarters of the Bible. We take this language literally, and if you're not familiar with apocalyptic language of the scriptures, you'll not understand what Peter is saying here. If you approach the New Testament's apocalyptic language without recognizing it for what it is, and you don't know how to deal with its tone, its images, its symbols, you're going to go astray. Let's back up to the beginning of this chapter uh, 3 here and see what Peter says. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder So Peter says, okay, people, what I'm trying to do is remind you of some things that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter is reminding his readers of what they already knew from the Tanakh. See, the New Testament doesn't contain brand new prophecies that just dropped out of the sky with some new information. 2 Peter 3 is just reiterating what has already been written in the prophets and spoken before. So that's a key to interpreting what Peter is saying. The key is that what he is saying has been written by the Old Covenant prophets. So keep that in mind. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord refers to a judgment of God. Here, particularly, a judgment on Israel. It is the end of Of the old covenant age, it's the end of Judaism, end of sacrifices, end of temple, end of all that system is done. And people, there's no question that all ended in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed, when the city was destroyed. Israel has not sacrificed an animal since. So if you take the sacrifices out of Judaism, what do you have? Nothing. You don't have you don't have a priesthood. The genealogical records were destroyed in the destruction of the city, so you got no priesthood. I read an article recently about they have the DNA now of the priests. So they don't need genealogies anymore. Now they can just check your DNA and see if you can be a priest. And my question was, where did they get this DNA? Where did they get this from, the sample from the priest? They went way back sometime. Oh, this guy, he took a blood sample before they, Jerusalem got destroyed. No, come on. People buy into that stuff because they're trying to put together something that doesn't fit together. But there's DNA of it. No, there's not, okay? Not at all. When the Lord comes, the heaven and earth of the old covenant age is going to pass away. And that's, we, we, again, we see heaven, we, we read heaven and earth, and we think, literal heavens, literal earth, that's not what it's talking about. Jerusalem, Josephus talks about this. The temple, the city was considered heaven and earth. Now, the words heavenly bodies here is from the Greek word stoheion In most translations, this is rendered elements, okay, and some see this referring to scientific idea of elements of matter. In other words, all the atoms of the universe are going to burn up. MacArthur says that about this. We're talking about the elements of matter, they're all going to burn up. Nah, really, that's not the problem here at all. What does elements mean here? Well, the Greek word stoicheion is only used seven times in the New Testament. And looking at its usage, we see it has two main meanings. Stoicheion is used of elements of religious training. That's really different from elements of matter, isn't it? Elements of religious training or ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of Jews. So by elements, he's talking about Jewish teachings, ceremonial precepts. In Strong's exhaustive exhaustive concordance of the Bible, the literal meaning of the word elements is element, rudiment, principle. In other words, this is the element of religious training or ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of the Jews. But stoicheion is also understood by many scholars to refer to heavenly spirits, which is why the ESV here translates it heavenly bodies. Obviously, stoicheion is not about atoms or destruction of the universe. This, if stoicheion is used of heavenly bodies, it's talking about the judgment of the gods which took place in A.D. 70, go back to Matthew 24, the judgments of the gods. When the Lord returned, destroying Jerusalem, He judged the false gods, put an end to the old covenant system. Look at 2 Peter 3, 11-13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all these, these gods are going to all be destroyed, these principles of Judaism all wiped away, what sort of people... Ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth, which righteousness dwells. What is being dissolved here, people, is the old covenant system, not the universe, okay? He says, according to the promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. Where's that promise? Where's the promise of a new heaven and a new earth? Well, I think Peter was surely thinking of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66:17 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered to come to mind. Now, If you go back to Isaiah and you read chapter 65 and 66, you will notice that before God creates a new heaven and a new earth, He pours out His wrath on Jerusalem, His rebellious people. And when God created the new heavens and new earth, you will notice that physical death still remains. Isaiah 65, 20 and 66, 24. So Isaiah puts us in the new heavens and new earth, but physical death is still happening he also talks about home construction and agriculture continuing in Isaiah 65, 21, and 22. We will still have descendants, Isaiah 65, 23, 66, The Lord will hear their prayers, Isaiah 65, 24. There will be evangelism, Isaiah 66:19. 19. So the new heavens and new earth, therefore, must be referring to a period of human history, I think the simplest way I can put this is the new heavens and new earth is the new covenant. Plain and simple. That's what it is. It's the new covenant. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant is here. It's the new heavens. It's the new earth. It's the period of the kingdom of God in which Christ rules in the hearts of believers. It's the new covenant. Now, before we move on to the rest of verse 10, I won't take that long with the rest of it, okay? Let me say this. In his almost 300-page commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, G.K. Beale, commenting on verse 10, the verse I've just spent two messages on, says this: Turning from earthly idols to serve God and to wait for Christ's deliverance of His people from the final judgment at His second coming. This was the message that new converts of Thessalonians were preaching. Now, what you don't get here is that's all he says. That's it. That's all he says about waiting for your son from heaven. In other words, he doesn't touch it. He just skips right over it. Keeps right on going. I'm like, wait a minute. Because I want one of these commentators to explain with me what do they mean by waiting? Why are they waiting? And most of them will say they believed it was imminent. But like we already read, Heath, he said, they believed it was imminent. We believe it's imminent. Still imminent. imminent then, imminent now. Eminence means nothing. Okay, let's go on. Verse 10. Whom he raised from the dead. Now, in a sense, the resurrection is part of the atonement, okay? They're connected. You've got to understand that. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. It's part of the atonement. He's got to rise from the dead. The resurrection is that monumentous event which marked out Yeshua as the Son of God, the Savior, and the means of forgiveness and justification before God. He was put to death, but He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. You know, the power of Rome was the cross. And Rome threatened that, and that hung over people's head. That was the power of Rome. You cross us, we'll put you on a cross, we will crucify you. And they did it to Messiah. And he rose from the dead. In other words, Rome has no power. It's totally defeated because we have resurrection. It marks out the sun as the basis for a living hope, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua the Christ from the dead. People... I don't know if you understand this, but the Gentiles had no hope of resurrection, okay? They didn't believe that. For example, Pliny the Elder, in his natural histories, affirmed that it was not possible for the God to do such things as bring the dead back to life. See, I love these gods. They're a bunch of wimps. They can't do anything, okay? They're fighting with each other. They're beating each other up. You know, they're just, the gods can't do that. These are the gods these people served. all right? Herodias understood the natural order of things to preclude the resurrection of the dead. Although Osiris could be called the Lord of the dead, this belief did not approach the Christian doctrine of resurrection of the dead, of which Yeshua was the first fruit. So they didn't believe that. So here we have Christ resurrected from the dead. Now, all they had to do was shut these Christians up is what? Bring the body. Look at here is the dead body. Shut up. He's not raised. He's right here, dead. Why couldn't? They, why didn't they do that? Why didn't Rome do that? Why didn't they? You know? Why didn't they just? Here is the body. They couldn't find it. The disciples hid it so well. No, they couldn't find it because it was gone. So their their argument is you know they they lied. They paid him. I love it. Just read that last week. We're going to give you a sum of money. You say that you fell asleep. And they came and stole the butt. If you're sleeping, how do you know what would happen anyway? But you say you're asleep, and don't worry, if it comes to the governor, we'll stick up for you. Man, this has been going on forever, people. Government's been being paid off <laughs> by the highest bidder for the longest time, okay? It's nothing new. It's men, all right? The resurrection of Yeshua was the core of the apostolic proclamation in Thessalonica and the universal confession of the church. Over and over in this letter, Yeshua is the one who is said to have died who is now alive and is coming again. Because he rose from the dead when he promises us resurrection life. He knows what he's talking about, okay? Paul closes this chapter by saying, Yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now what is this wrath? Well, this is the wrath that Yeshua predicted would come upon Jerusalem and all who rejected Yeshua. Who is the us here in this verse? That Yeshua delivers from wrath. Well, it's Paul's writing this, so it's Paul and the Thessalonians. He's going to deliver us. Us. If they're going to be delivered from wrath, they have to be around when it happens. Okay, Don't worry, you'll be dead when the wrath comes. He didn't say that. He delivers us from the wrath. All right, Here's what we need to understand, because these verses are connected. There are three main events that happen at the return of Christ, and this happened in AD 70. They're all tied together. They're synchronous. The resurrection of the dead the judgment and the second coming all took place at the same time. And Paul here connects the coming and the judgment. He says, "We wait for a son from heaven, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath." Wrath is coming, but we're going to get delivered. Notice what Luke says in Luke 21:20 20 about the time of this judgment. Luke says, "And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies." Okay. They know what Jerusalem was. When you see a bunch of armies come surround a city, then know this. Desolation has come near. Is that just... Okay, I get that. Look at all the armies surrounding us. We're in trouble, right? Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. People, this is counterintuitive. Jerusalem was a fortress. If you see armies coming, you should run to the fortress, right? No, the Lord said, no, no, don't do that. Head to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. There's an army coming. You're in a fortress, but get out of there. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. Just get away, people. This is clearly a reference to the 66 to 70 destruction of Jerusalem. Notice what Yeshua says next. For these... Are the days of vengeance, the vengeance of God, to fulfill all that is written? This is a very significant verse, people. Yeshua tells us here that all the things which are written would be fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. What does that mean? All things which are written refers to prophecy. So all prophecy was to be fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Was the second coming of Christ a prophecy? Yes, it was to be fulfilled. New heavens and new earth, the prophecy. Yes, it was all fulfilled in the destruction of the city. That's a very, very significant event. Everything that was ever prophesied was fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem because that was the vengeance of God, the ending of the old covenant. Please consider the weight of this statement. The next verse he says, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, For there will be great distress upon the earth, wrath against this people. Who are this people? Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about here. That's the whole context. The parousia of Yeshua is associated with judgment against apostate Israel. Now, we must understand that the coming of Christ was not a physical coming in a biological body. Again, it was very physical to the residents of Jerusalem. Okay, not a bodily form of Christ, but the destruction was very physical, all right? But it was the Roman army, just like back in Isaiah 19.1, okay, it was the Assyrians. This is the Roman army, and demonstrating the presence of God. When Christ came, he came in judgment, not in a bodily form. He came in judgment against Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem evidenced Christ coming on the clouds for that historical people who had turned their back on their Savior. So, are we to see it only as a coming judgment on Israel? I mean, how does that affect us? No, not at all. Listen, the full preterist sees the judgment coming on Israel as the second coming of Christ, the ending and putting away of the old covenant, the consummation of the new covenant, the bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. This is covenantal. This all It wasn't just about destroying a city. It was a covenantal change. And if that covenantal change did not happen, then I want to ask you, where are you sacrificing your animals at today? Because under the old covenant, that, you don't get away. Every day, two lambs were sacrificed. Morning and evening. Every single day. On the Sabbath, two animals were sacrificed. My neighbor told me recently, I celebrated the Sabbath the other day with my Jewish friends. I said, yeah, where did you sacrifice? She just looked at me like, you are on drugs or what? I'm like, no, the Bible says on the Sabbath you sacrifice. Where did you sacrifice? See, people don't recognize God shut it down. Now, Israel's still going on with their whatever, but it doesn't resemble the Bible. There's no feast days. There's no sacrifice. There's no priesthood. It's done. God said, I'm done. And we are just too blind to see it. Yeshua said he was going to come in the lifetime of his disciples, not just to judge Israel, but to raise the dead. He said he would come in that generation while some of the disciples were still alive. He said his coming would be soon. And it was. I believe him. We believe he did just what he said he would do when he returned in AD 70 as manifest by the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. He judged Israel for rejecting their Messiah. He raised the dead, taking them out of Sheol into the presence of God. He consummated the new covenant, bringing in everlasting righteousness to those who trust in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the Word of God. Lord, I thank You that we have so many ideas, so many areas which we can study today because we have so many study aids at our disposal. So many Greek works available, so many historical works that we can study, we can dig. We have no excuse for being ignorant, Lord. Give us, Lord, the heart of Bereans. May we study to see if these things are so. Lord, I thank you that you said you were coming soon and you did. I'm comfortable with that, Lord. I rest in that. Thank you for keeping your word. You are a God who can be trusted. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Gary. Um, two things, really. Cole, I think he said, quoted that uh, people who, would, who pierce him would see him in his coming. Correct. Wouldn't that negate the rest of the statement because those people that pierce him were 2,000 years ago? Well, yeah, if it's referring to a future coming, it would. That's the whole thing. Yeah. They who pierced him will see him. Right. Okay, so. He's, so. He's his own, his own state. Again, we, we miss some of that stuff, when, yeah. you know. Um, as far as the clouds, uh, going back to the Exodus, the pillar of clouds that was protecting or leading Israel, I don't think anybody saw Yahweh in that cloud, but they knew his presence was there. He was there. But then you actually see him. That's what the cloud represent, the presence of God. Again, we don't see that today. You look up at a cloud, what do you think? Oh, there's a cloud. You don't think about the presence of God. That doesn't come to our mind because we're not that familiar with the text. And if we get more familiar, that idea of clouds. See, Luke's telling us so much more than you know, what's just happening this day as the Lord just floats up into the sky. He's going into the presence of God, He is the Messiah. <clears throat> I guess he could have demonstrated too if he wanted to. The sudden clouds, the presence of the sun. The sun come up, you know, the same thing, right? He could have demonstrated any way he wanted to, you know. But again, he's using language that they're familiar with, okay? That we're not so familiar with. And that's why I keep on you to read the Bible through every year because the more you do that, the more you're going to start putting all these things together. You know, you're going to read... Isaiah 19, you're going to say, oh, I know what that's... Yeah, Yeshua come on the clouds, just like his daddy did, okay? (laughs) Comes in wrath, comes in judgment. All right, we got some questions here. Did the Israelites in the wilderness physically see the cloud and the pillar of fire? Yes, they did. I think that's demonstrated very clearly that pillar stayed over the tabernacle, okay? Israel would make camp, they'd settle down, they looked look to the tabernacle, there's a pillar of fire at night, there's a cloud during the day. They didn't move if that cloud didn't move. That cloud moved, they broke camp and they followed it. That's what blows my mind when they get mad at Moses. Why did you bring us out into the wilderness to die? I'd be like, oh Lord, just kill them all. I mean, how dumb are you people? Look at this pillar of cloud and fire that we're following around you think i'm doing that you think those 10 plagues in egypt i did that the parting of the red sea i did that and you're blaming me yes it was visible and it was so clear to them that god was leading them and yet they murmured constantly against god and god judged them for their murmuring people keep that in mind okay Uh, Steve Morgan says, 1 Timothy 3.16, ESV, Yeshua was taken up in glory. Same as Exodus 16.10, glory equates with the clouds. That's right. This is, this is the language of Scripture, okay? Uh, Bill Evans. Hey, Bill. Good to hear from you, brother. Uh, he says, you covered so much territory. Thank you. Sharing. I well, appreciate it. Yeah, we want to share. Let people know. All right, here's a good question here. How the Jews in the Diaspora were able to see him return. Okay, we're talking about a destruction of Jerusalem. This had ramifications around the known world at that time. And we'll talk about that because we're going to get into that as we get into the Thessalonians. Because the Thessalonians, okay, they're they're not in Jerusalem. But this is affecting them greatly. And we'll talk about that uh, in the coming years, months, as we work, work our way through <laughs> It says, uh, the penalty for falling asleep on guard duty in the first century of Rome was death. That's right. The story they were paid off is not likely. Brad in western Massachusetts. Well, see, the, they were paid off, but the story told me if it comes to the governor, we'll cover for you. All right? Yes, they were risking their lives. but doing this, but they were told to do it, and they're taking the money, and they're following the orders. And again, the story continues to this day, the scriptures say, okay? That it was, you know... That's what happened. That's what the text says. Okay, will they just keep coming in. How do we know there was a resurrection in AD 70? Well, because the Lord told us. All right. I think, I don't know, that's the simplest thing. All through Scripture, the, re- the resurrection of the dead is tied with the coming of Christ. Christ came. The dead were raised. We don't, I mean, you can go dig up a grave and find, oh, there's a body there, because that's not what it's about, okay? It was the dead were taken out of Sheol, the waiting place for the dead, and taken into the presence of God, because nobody went into the presence of God prior to the second coming. That's why he says, and in the age to come, you receive eternal life, because they couldn't have eternal life till the Lord came back. It was a picture of the high priest coming out of the temple. The sacrifice was not accepted until that high priest came out of the temple on the day of atonement. So Christ coming out of heaven is a picture there. You are forgiven. Atonement is made. Forgiveness is there. Now, people believe that the Lord hasn't come, but they think they're forgiven, but that doesn't fit Scripture. Okay? Okay? Bill Evans again, he says, Futurists all suggest that Messiah delivers the kingdom to the Father after he has defeated his enemies, the last one being death. Since we still have sin and death, the new heavens and new earth cannot have come. And this 1 Corinthians 15 referenced what is still future. What do they think Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection? Yeah, I, I agree. That's, you know, they say, because we still have sin and death. And see, that's, an again, an idea. Whenever Israel was moved, left their land, see, the land represented the presence of Yahweh. When you read the scriptures, you get that. You, you hear when they're fighting, and they say, oh, their God is the God of the valley and not the God of the mountains, so we got to learn how do you fight this God in the valley? They had territories. The gods had different territories. All right, that's, that's uh, Deuteronomy 34, 8, and 9. All right, God divided up the nations. He gave these gods territory over them. So, God's territory is Israel, so when they're out of the land through deportation, they're away from God. They're away from God, and they're crying, and they're weeping, and they say, how can we sing our songs? You know, they hung their harps on the trees because we're out of the land. We're away from God. So when there's not going to be any more crying, any more tears, any more death, it doesn't mean that physical stuff won't happen. It means we will never, ever be separated from God. That's the promise of the new covenant. Nothing shall separate us. Okay? Oh my word, they just they keep coming. Okay, the question here, good question. Daniel asked, if everything was fulfilled in AD 70, what should we be doing? We should be living for God in righteousness and holiness, modeling Christ, being image bearers, In everything that we do. Evangelism is still happening. Okay, When I say everything was fulfilled, the prophecy was fulfilled, but it has ongoing consequences and ramifications. Yes, the new covenant was consummated, but the new covenant goes on. And we still share the gospel. and People are still coming into the kingdom of God. We're image bearers. We bear the image of God. We're imitators of God. So when the world looks at us, they see God. We're to be living for God. Bringing the light of the gospel to a lost and dying world. That will go on. There's no indication that's going to end. But that's what we're called to do. That doesn't change. In the new heavens and the new earth, people are still being saved. Because if you read Revelation, it talks about the city coming down out of heaven. And it says, outside the city are whoremongers and sorcerers. And dogs. Well, who are these people outside the city? The city is the new covenant. Those outside the new covenant don't know God and we're to carry the gospel to them. It's ongoing. Uh, Mike Sullivan. Mike. How you doing, Mike? Says, some partial predators take First Thessalonians 1 as fulfilled in AD 70, but don't equate the waiting to be rescued or delivered with the snatching away of 1 Thessalonians 4 16 through 17 into God's presence and away from the wrath in AD 60, 7, 70. The two passages deal with the same event. And that's true. Some people will see passages and they'll say, yeah, that did happen in AD 70, but there's another coming. That would be three. And I don't know, and scripture talks about that, okay? A third coming. John Bray. God rest his soul, okay? He taught, he came to a place where he taught every scripture that talks about the coming refers to eighty seventy. But, he said, I believe there's another coming. So, you can believe anything you want if you want to make it up and don't have anything to back it up, right? He didn't stay there long, okay? It wasn't too long after that. I don't think it was even six months. John Bray came out and said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. It's all over. It all happened in eighty seventy. You can't, you know... And when he held that position, I'm like, you can't hold that. You can believe in little green mint. You can believe anything you want. It's not in Scripture. You can believe what you want to believe. If you believe there's another coming, go ahead and believe it. But you can't back it up with the Scripture. And that's all we're interested in doing, okay? What the Scripture says is important. What you believe is really not, Okay. <laughs>